So it was 75 years ago this month that Sir Winston Churchill, that great British statesman of the 20th century, delivered arguably his most famous speech. It was titled, The Sinews of Peace. And it was given actually just up the road at a small college in Fulton, Missouri, which was at the time a nod to the then president, uh, Harry S. Truman, who actually had been a senator there in Missouri for years. Well, in that speech that Winston Churchill gave, he warned of a growing darkness to the East. Because in the aftermath of World War II, Joseph Stalin, he had seized much of what we think of as Central and Eastern Europe. And Churchill went on to describe how an iron curtain had descended across the continent. Behind that line he, he spoke, he said, lies all the capitals of the ancient states of Warsaw, of Berlin, Prague and Vienna, Budapest and Belgrade. And of course he went on and we now know that famous speech as his Iron Curtain speech. And in Berlin, that Iron Curtain actually took the form of a literal concrete wall. It actually divided East Berlin from West Berlin. And on one side, you had democracy and on liberty. And on the other side, you had totalitarianism and you had oppression. And actually, when I was 15 years old, I sat on that wall. So the wall had come down just a number of months before. I was playing water polo in Germany that summer as a young high school student. And we were visiting, playing a tournament there, and we were in East Berlin. And so what did I do as a 15-year-old? Well, I thought I'll climb atop that wall. And I borrowed a hammer and chisel and took a little piece and brought it home. You can't do that now. They don't like that. But at the time, they were happy for as much of that wall to disappear as possible. Right, The painful reminder of what that wall represented. Well, you know, as we stayed in, in East Berlin that weekend, I remember seeing firsthand the drastic difference between what it was like to be on the east side, on the wrong side of that iron curtain. Right? There was darkness, there was still fear, there was despair in the people. But friends, that iron curtain serves as an image, really as a fitting symbol for another curtain that we see in Scripture, There is another curtain in Scripture that separates all that is good and beautiful from all that is dark and depraved and sinful. It's the curtain that really separates a holy God from fallen humanity. It's the curtain that prevents us from access to God, from unhindered fellowship with God. It was the curtain there in the Jewish temple that separated the holy place from the most holy of holies. And in the Bible, all of us, we are caught on the wrong side of that curtain. Right? We were born on that side in our slavery to sin. We remain on that side, ostracized, excluded, shut out from God's presence. So friends, how does that iron curtain come down once and for all? How can peace and liberty be restored between creature and creator? Friend, how this morning can you be reconciled to God? Well, that brings us 
Friends, to our text this morning in the Gospel of Mark, I want to invite you to turn there, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be verses 21 through 47. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you can look there on the worship guide you should have received when you arrived. I think you can find it on pages 9 and 10. And if you're visiting, we are now at the very end of the Gospel of Mark, the final hours, literally, of Jesus' own life. And the Jewish leadership, as we saw last week, they're threatened by Jesus. They've now convicted him and condemned him on trumped-up charges. They beat him. They have spit upon him. And they have delivered him over to the Roman governor, Pilate. And, and we saw last week, Pilate does a bit of a cross-examination. And we get the distinct sense, Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. But in order to secure his own political future, he finally consents to sacrifice Jesus on the altar of political expediency. And with that, we read how Jesus was flogged, how the bone and glass-studded whips tore into flesh and bone, how his bloodied body is then dressed in this parody of royal garb where Roman soldiers, they strike him, they take their turns mocking him, right, hailing him laughingly as the king of the Jews. And then they lead him out to crucify him. And we pick up the story in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. And when he was with 
Rather, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Friends, so we come to arguably the most harrowing passage of Mark, and not just that, but really all of human history, if we want to think of it as a whole. These are the final moments of Jesus' own life. And I think one of the challenges many of us will have as we come to a passage like this is our apparent familiarity with it. You know, many of us know the story. Maybe we've even seen movies or witnessed childhood skits that would have reenacted the scene. You know, even crosses themselves. They've become a ubiquitous part of our culture and our own landscape. So whether those crosses are displayed prominently on buildings or hanging around our necks, we barely notice them, let alone be moved by them. Yet crosses were political symbols of oppression before they were ever religious symbols of devotion. And so what we tend to do is maybe on the one hand, we can waffle between a kind of morbid preoccupation with the gore of the cross. Maybe think Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Or on the other hand, we can just revert to a kind of shallow sentimentalism. But both of those dangers make it hard for us to see what's really happening, I think, what's really at stake And I think if we step back and just consider the scene and try to summarize it in a sentence, we might be able to summarize it like this. Jesus was rejected by God so that we might be reconciled to God by confessing him as the Son of God. So if you're looking for a summary sentence, I would suggest perhaps that's it right there. I'll say it again. I know it's a little long, longer than I like, but here it is. Jesus was rejected by God so that we might be reconciled to God by confessing him as the Son of God. And if that's too much, just think rejection, reconciliation, confession, all right? Just think those three words. And what I want to do is I don't want to take that summary sentence. We're just going to break it down. And that summary sentence is going to serve as our outline this morning. So beginning with that first phrase, Jesus was first rejected by God. Jesus was firstly, he was rejected by God. And heads up, this is my longest point, so don't fret, all right, when we go for a little while here. Okay, we see this rejection principally there in verse 34, that cry of dereliction from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But friends, I just want you to see it's not just there. This rejection is everywhere in our passage. So the scene opens 
with Jesus being led outside the city gates to the place called Golgotha. Now, there was a famous 18th century uh, scholar who believed that that was a hill that got its name because that hill was in the shape of a skull, which is why so many of our hymns, uh, sort of 18th and 19th century hymns, even modern hymns, will often refer to the Mount of Crucifixion. We see pictures of Jesus, you know, up on a hill. And in reality, it's actually more likely that this place got its name, Place of the Skull, because of the death, because of the capital punishment, because of the crucifixions that would have happened there. It would have likely been right outside those city gates on a main thoroughfare heading into Jerusalem. And crucifixion would have, been, would have taken place right along that main thoroughfare. They would have done it in that manner because crucifixion was as much about terrorizing the populace as it was about inflicting pain on the victim. Right? Crucifixion would happen so that it would serve as a kind of deterrent. It was meant to frighten people into submission, to remind them what would happen to them if they dared to cross Rome. They would land on such a cross themselves. And so we read verse 24, they crucified him, which is to say the Roman soldiers would have nailed his hands to an outstretched horizontal beam, and then they would have hoisted that beam with Jesus upon it to a large wooden pole that already would have been fixed to the ground. And then likely they would have placed one foot over the other and they would have driven a single stake through both forefeet into that pole, thus securing him to the cross. Crucifixion did no immediate damage to internal organs. It caused very little blood loss. And that was intentional. Because it was meant to prolong suffering. It was designed that way so that eventually the body, beaten, exhausted, exposed, would struggle to hold itself up. It would start to collapse. And as the body collapsed upon itself, you would struggle to breathe. You would begin to asphyxiate. And then you have to throw yourself back up. And if they wanted to be particularly cruel, they put a little seat there on the pole so you could rest on it just to prolong the agony. That could go on for days, we would read. At which time, birds and dogs often, we read, would begin to feast on flesh. It was that cruel, too cruel, too inhumane for crucifixion to ever fall upon a Roman citizen. Doesn't matter how bad a Roman citizen you were, you would not be crucified. It was reserved for the lowest of low in society, for those who were slaves, for those who had committed treason, for rebels against the state, which is why Cicero would call it the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible, Josephus the most miserable of deaths, and the Romans had spent decades perfecting it. It was so horrific. The word itself, you would never utter it in polite Roman society. It was worse than the worst expletive because it was meant to inflict maximum torture and humiliation. And despite all the modesty of our paintings and sculptures, crucifixion was always done naked. And yet with all that, things Mark readers would have known, Mark himself narrates the crucifixion with the utmost restraint 
and discretion. They crucified him. That's only two words in Greek. That's all Mark says. That's it. He doesn't sensationalize it for effect, which is one of my concerns. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, apart from the major problem with that movie, which is it really doesn't explain at all why Jesus had to come and die, right? Which is the most significant question. Doesn't even deal with that. But even so, it's the emphasis of the film on that macabre fascination with the, the, with the brutality and with the savagery of it all. And the Gospels themselves don't really put the focus there. Mark doesn't exploit the savagery, nor does he simply evoke sentimentality as he writes. The accent here with the crucifixion, it's on the mockery. It's on the rejection that Jesus suffers. So notice verse 24, the Roman soldiers, as Jesus is there suffering in agony upon the cross, they're amusing themselves by casting lots, like rolling dice for his clothing. And then we read in verse 29 that the, those who passed by, right, along the way, headed into Jerusalem, those were pilgrims, right, for the Passover, those who passed by, well, what did they do? They derided him, wagging their heads at him. Do you see how quickly the people had already turned on Jesus? They had received him earlier in the week. They had celebrated him. They had waved palm branches and, and cried Hosanna out to him. It's what we sang in, in that song, Jerusalem. They had done all of that, and yet now they reject him, wag their heads at him. Even the chief priests and scribes, verse 31, they get in on the action. They mock him, right? He saved others. He cannot save himself. Verse 32, let the king of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And we read even that those who were crucified with him, even they found opportunity to revile him. So they despised him as a prophet, Right? You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They despised him as a prophet. They mocked him as a priest. He saved others. He cannot save himself. They humiliated him as king. If he is the king, let him prove it by what? By coming down from the cross. Right? The picture is one of total and complete rejection. We tend to despise those who disappoint us most. Uh, this is a trite example, but any of you watching the NCAA tournament, you saw perhaps Ohio State lost one of their players getting death threats. I mean, it's ridiculous. But there was lots of promise, didn't come through. We despise those who disappoint us. And Jesus, there were great hopes for Jesus. And it looks now as if it's all come crashing down and they despise him. But friend, had Christ really disappointed? Had he really disappointed I mean, the Jews, what's become so clear is they didn't have a category for a crucified Christ. They didn't have a category for a suffering son. It was galling, both to Jews and to Gentiles, to suppose that anyone who would be crucified would at the same time claim to be God. But it's not just that Jesus cannot save himself. We know it's that he would not save himself. He chose not to save himself. It wasn't a physical impossibility. That wasn't the issue at all. It was for Jesus an ethical and spiritual impossibility. That's what he would not stomach. 
Jesus would refuse to save himself precisely so he could save others, including those right by his side. Jesus knew the only way to save others was to refuse to save himself. And yet saving himself was exactly what they demanded of him. It's what the Jewish leaders themselves, right? They were so skilled at saving themselves, protecting their own hide. Pilate the same. Friends, it's just like us. Just like us, saving oneself, that's a natural impulse of the human heart. It's the natural impulse of religion, of contemporary thought. Whatever you can do, we read, to improve yourself, to better yourself, to be good to yourself, Well, that's the highest good. That's what you should aspire to and attain. Self-help, self-fulfillment, save oneself. It's actually what they're demanding even right here of Jesus. They didn't have a category that glory could come through suffering and through sacrifice. They didn't have a category that the call to true discipleship was a call to die, a call to die to self, die to ambition, die to worldly prominence, die to fame. They didn't see how all that was transpiring around them was a fulfillment of Psalm 22 that Joy wonderfully read earlier in the service. Psalm 22, 17, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Or verse seven, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Or 22, verse eight, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. They can't see even right here how they are a part of God's bigger plan. And then in the same way, their great King David, who they are longing and waiting for, they can't see how David's greater son is here before them, suffering in the same way David did at the hands of the people so that Christ, right, David's greater son, he too would suffer. Even such that the charge, what did that charge above his head read? The king of the Jews, And friends, that charge, we know that charge spoke truth. He was the king. And he would make that cross his first throne. So my Christian friend, if you look to the values of this world, if you measure and order your life according to the values of this world, you will never be able to make sense of Christianity. Jesus upends them at every turn. We see it profoundly even here. For he has taught us along the way that it is by dying to self that we live for him. That freedom from sin comes in being a slave to God. That the one who desires to save his life will lose it. And the one who is willing to lose his life for Christ and the gospel's sake is the one who will save it. That strength comes in weakness. That the first will be last. That to lead is to serve. That to be rejected by the world is to be accepted by God. That the foolishness of the cross is the very wisdom of God. Friends, the world cannot understand these things. It cannot grasp them. 
It insists Jesus here has it all backward. And so what do they do? They mock him. They despise him. They demand a miracle when the greatest miracle the world has ever witnessed is right before their eyes and they're too blind and hardened to see it. Friends, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet at the same time you're struggling to make sense of your life, to understand why your life hasn't seemed to turn out as you expected or why you suffer as you do, maybe your Christian life just feels like one rolling discouragement after another, like you pictured a Ferrari and a racetrack and instead you've got a jalopy and a bunch of potholes and you're just bumping along the way. Could that be because you still measure your life according to the values of this world. You see, at this point, all of humanity has turned on Jesus. The soldiers gambling underneath him, the crowds passing by deride him, the chief priests and scribes mock him, those crucified revile him, the disciples, right, they've abandoned him, we have not heard from them in ages, And yet none of that, friends, will compare to God forsaking him. Because we read in verse 33, there when the sixth hour had come, so it's, it's noon there, noon, darkness fell over the whole land. This was not an eclipse, right? Passover happened at a full moon, so that's not what we have. This was a kind of supernatural darkness. And if you think about it, it's a very fitting sign for those who have rejected the light of the world, to now lose that light. It's a picture of judgment, just as darkness fell over Egypt at that first Passover. So now it would fall over Israel at the second. It's the first here, it's the first divine intervention we have in our text. And it's a hint to us that something else is happening. Something here is happening of cosmic proportions, much bigger than they have eyes to see. And it's then that Jesus cries out, verse 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting once again from Psalm 22. And yet when Jesus utters that cry, he's not saying God has finally abandoned or deserted him. We know that all of this is happening according to plan, just as Psalm 22 predicted it, or you could look at Isaiah 53 or Psalm 69. No, it's the rejection of knowing that God's judgment has fully now fallen upon him. Jesus has come to the bottom of that bitter cup. He has drunk it up, and it's unbearable. Right, Just like in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not the physical agony even here that most pains Jesus. It's the spiritual agony. It's the agony, friends, that you and I cannot fathom the agony that I pray none of us here would ever experience, to be separated from God, to bear the full wrath of God for sins, which on the cross is exactly what Christ was doing. A wrath that's not abstract, it's not detached, it is personal, deeply personal. And this here, friends, this is the heart of the cross. Right? This is the mystery right here, which no painting which no sculpture, right, with contorted face and bloodied brow, it cannot even begin to capture. 
Because we fail to recognize the true nature of sin, the infinite punishment our sins deserve. We fail to recognize the agony of not just being separated from God, but bearing the full wrath of God. That is something simply beyond us. We can't fathom it. We can't begin to understand what it would be like to bear it, which is why Jesus goes and bears it alone for us. Christian, I hope you see that the cross right here it has criticized you it has condemned you and judged you more intensely more deeply more comprehensively and pervasively and completely than anything anyone could possibly say about you the cross says so much more when you come to understand what's happening at the foot of the cross as you see yourself, as we see ourselves for who we truly are, other criticisms may come to us and we say, yeah, that's just the beginning. You don't know the half of it. That's the word the cross speaks to us. There is no word of condemnation greater than what the cross speaks. And yet at the same time, there's no word of comfort greater to the Christian than what the cross speaks. You know, when the great pilgrim John Bunyan was married, he and his wife, they had, they had precious little money. He was but a poor tinker. His wife was able to save up a little money and, and buy him a book. How would you like that for a wedding gift? Nice little book, a devotional. And in this devotional, it was called The Practice of Piety. And, and in the book, there's the soul of the sinner and that soul of the sinner dialogues with the suffering Christ. And the soul says to Christ, Why wouldst thou be bound? Christ says that I may loose the cords of thy iniquities. Why would thou be lifted up upon a cross? Well, that I might lift thee up to heaven. Why were thy hands and thy feet nailed to the cross? Well, in order to set thy feet at liberty. And to walk in the ways of my peace. Why was thy side opened with a spear? That thou may have a way to come near to my heart. Oh, my Christian friend, do you struggle to understand? This morning, do you struggle to believe how much you are valued by God? Look to the cross. Do you struggle to believe that he will be faithful to you? Look to the cross. How pitiful is your condition? Look to the cross. How horrifying is your sin? Look to the cross. How desperate is your plight? Look to the cross. Yet how far God is willing to go to save you? Look to the cross. How committed he is to have you. Look to the cross. How personally and how profoundly he loves you. Look to the cross. Jesus alone was rejected by God so that we might be reconciled to God. That's what I want us to think about as we turn to the second point. He was rejected by God, secondly, so that we might be reconciled to God. For when Jesus cried out there on the cross, some thought he was crying out for Elijah. Jews at that time believed in, in moments of crisis that 
Elijah would come for a truly righteous person. And surely if Jesus is truly righteous, then Elijah would come and spare him. They're looking, waiting for Elijah. But friends, right there, they made the same mistake that Job's friends made. The same mistake that we all make, that righteous people shouldn't suffer. And yet what they failed to understand is that it's because Jesus alone is righteous that he could not be spared if he was to be the sin crusher. And so with the sip of that sour wine, Jesus musters up his last strength. Verse 37, we read that he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now notice that cry. We're not told it was merely a whimper or a whisper, which is what you would expect from someone dying in this manner, dying of asphyxiation. No, when the centurion saw, verse 39, the way we read that he breathed his last The way Christ breathed that last and cried out, it changed that guy's life forever. This wasn't a cry of defeat. It wasn't finally a cry of surrender. This was, in that moment, Jesus' own victory cry of triumph, that his suffering was over, that his work was complete. Such that notice what happens, verse 39. Immediately we read, verse 39, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You know, there in the Jewish temple, you had a thickly woven curtain that separated, again, the most holy place from the holy of holies, right? The most holy of holy places, the the place where God actually dwelled. And that curtain served as a kind of iron curtain, right? A constant reminder of the separation between sinful man who could not enter into the presence of a holy God without a sacrifice. And on that day, Jesus carried the cross, at least part of the way we read from the Gospels, like Isaac bearing that wood for his own sacrifice in Genesis 22, which was the call to worship John read earlier. So Jesus would bear that wood for his own sacrifice. Except unlike Isaac, he was the sacrifice that day. And there on Passover night, that's no accident, no coincidence. On that Passover night, a new and better Passover lamb was slain, ushering in a new and better exodus for God's people. And like that Passover lamb, Jesus was slain outside the camp, outside the walls. Beside him, two criminals insurrectionists really and we see there how he was truly in the words of Isaiah 53 numbered with the transgressors and yet bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors so just as he promised he's dying there as a as a ransom for many in order to reconcile us to God you know the tearing of that curtain was the second divine intervention that day Whereas darkness signaled the utter judgment of God, that torn curtain now signaled unhindered access to God. For when that curtain tore, recognized the Jewish priesthood, the temple, the entire sacrificial system were rendered obsolete, worthless. Jesus' death had now established a new way into God's presence, such that we read in Hebrews ten nineteen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is the curtain of his flesh. If you've come here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, recognize there is, in fact, an iron curtain that separates you from this holy God. You can't cross it. You can't climb over it. You can't slip through it. There is no way around it. It must be torn. It must be brought down if you're ever to enter into the presence of God. And only Jesus' death can do it. That's it. Only Jesus was that spotless Lamb of God who died as the perfect sacrifice for sinners, which means there is no way back to God other than through Jesus Christ. Only him, only his life, only his death as a sacrifice for sinners will suffice. So friend, if you've come, I plead with you to abandon all other ways. They will not get you there. They will leave you desperate, despairing, discouraged, however you want to put it. There is but one way, and it is through the death of Jesus Christ, the one who ransomed sinners for God. You accept that death by looking to him and by trusting it was sufficient, by turning from your sin and following him in faith. That's what it means. There's nothing for you to do, nothing you to add to. You receive it with the empty hands of faith as the gift that it is that Christ won for you if you believe in him. And Christian, recognize when Christ uttered that final cry, he finished it. So you too, there is nothing left for you to do. He completed it. All of it. So do not provoke God. Do not insult God by assuming there is something you must do to add to it in order to win the favor of God. If his work is incomplete, to treat his work as if it's incomplete and it's up to you to finally secure it, to finally finish it, that is an insult to God. It'd be like trying to take a paintbrush, I don't know, to the Mona Lisa. Thinking like, Leonardo, you didn't quite have it right. I know how I can do this better. Or Michelangelo's David. Yeah, it looks great, but give me a hammer and a chisel, and I'm sure I can improve upon that. That's an obnoxious thought. Of course not. All we would do is mess it up and detract from it. We're not called to refine Jesus' work. We're called to rest in that work. Rest ourselves in it. For there on the cross, Jesus alone reconciled you to God. And that reconciliation happens. Moving on, point three. By confessing him as the son of God. Thirdly, by confessing him as the son of God. You know, it's fascinating when you look at the book of Mark. The gospel opens, Mark 1.10. And we read in Mark 1.10 that the heavens are torn. Notice that word right there, torn. The heavens are torn, and a voice then declares Jesus to be the Son of God. And how is the gospel ending? But once again, a curtain now is torn, same word, and yet with another voice that will declare, verse 39, truly, this man was, what, the Son of God. 
It's the cry of faith, a remarkable cry of faith. For this is the first time in the gospel that someone has formally confessed, I mean, other than God, formally confessed Jesus to be the Son of God. And notice who it is. It's not a high priest, not a leading rabbi, not a loyal disciple, but a hardened Roman thug, right? This guy's a professional executioner. This is a man who pierces people like we would pierce worms. That was his job. So you've got an idolatrous pagan seeing what the Bible professionals and what the Jewish experts cannot see and would not see. And notice who surrounds him. Verses 41 and 42. We read of a host of women who had followed Jesus and ministered to him since those days in Galilee. We're talking days now, months, months back. Friends, faith, right? So faith and followers, they often come, we see in the Bible, faith and followers come sometimes from the most unlikely of places, the most unlikely of quarters. So a Roman centurion makes the first Christian confession and a group of women are identified as his most faithful followers. A reminder that God will often use those whom we least expect to accomplish his own great purposes. In fact, the only reason we know what happened here upon the cross, obviously, is because there were women there who bore witness to it. There's a centurion who lived to tell about it. And those women were witnesses because the disciples weren't for all we know, those guys were halfway back to Galilee at this point. But that confession is not simply witnessed in a cry of faith, but it's also going to be seen in acts of repentance and faith. You know, that's what's pictured by there with Joseph of Arimathea, a guy who we're told in verse 43 was a respected member of the council, so that is of the Sanhedrin. And evidently it seems, therefore, that not all of the Jewish leadership was aligned against Jesus. But while we read, uh, you can read in Luke, and we read there that Joseph didn't consent to Jesus' death. While that's true, it's also not at all clear that Joseph at any point publicly and openly stood up and spoke against that death. We read of no stirring defense there's no impassioned plea back in Mark 14 Joseph is making not to condemn Jesus. And yet here's the thing. It seems at this point, Joseph comes to understand that there's simply no such thing as a secret disciple. There's really just no such thing as a secret disciple. At some point, if we're going to truly confess Jesus, we've got to do it publicly. We all have to come out into the open knowing that doing so could burn bridges and could come and likely will come at significant personal cost. Recognize it's a bold move for Joseph to go to Pilate and request the body of Jesus. Now Pilate, we read, is surprised to actually hear that Jesus has died. And he grants Joseph's request, which makes you wonder, did Pilate feel guilty for what had happened, knowing he condemned an innocent man? We're not told. We're not given a window into his heart. We won't know. But we read that Joseph rushes, and he prepares the body before sundown, right? He's got to do that before the Sabbath begins. So to recognize there's no funeral service for Jesus. 
No one's singing for him, no crowds mourning over him, no procession, no followers, nothing. Just Joseph hastily wrapping Jesus in linen and then placing him in a hole. How his ministry seems to have ended. What started with such a bang seems to have come to just this whimper of a conclusion, a pathetic conclusion, it appears. But just notice again, notice what Joseph has done. For in coming publicly and boldly to Pilate and requesting the body, he has identified himself as a sympathizer at a minimum, which means he risks being seen as treasonous to Rome. And we've just seen what Rome does to those who commit treason. He risks not only treason, but in taking Jesus' body and caring for it as he has, he risks alienating the Sanhedrin, of which he is a prominent member, putting his own position at risk. He also risks the ire of the populace at large, which clearly has no favor toward Jesus. In other words, again, this is a costly move. Even handling the corpse would render him now ceremonially unclean for the Passover. See, Mark's helping us see, at some point, if we're going to confess Jesus, we all must stand up and at some point be counted with Jesus. If you're going to confess him, you have to stand up and be counted with him. We're being given a picture of what true discipleship looks like. So what the disciples would not do, a centurion and a group of women and a member of the Sanhedrin, and even a man from Cyrene seemed to faithfully do. Because just go back to the very beginning. Notice how the passage opens in verse 21. We know from other gospels, Jesus began to bear the weight of that crossbeam to take it about 300 yards to the place of his execution. But evidently, given his weakened state from the flogging and from the beating. He couldn't make it. And so Rome had the right to conscript and grab anyone they wanted and force them into service. And so they do that with Simon of Cyrene, forced to carry it. And you see there how Simon literally pictures what Jesus had taught his disciples back in 834. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right here, we're given another picture of discipleship. Because Simon is listed as the father of Alexander and Rufus, which seems like a superfluous detail, except we remember Mark's writing to the church in Rome and in Romans 16. Who do we read of? Faithful there, but Rufus. Romans 16. It appears Rufus was now well known to the church in Rome, for it seems he, likely his own father, became disciples that day as they walked with Jesus to Calvary. You know, friends, as we step back, our passage, if you picked up on it, it is filled with names. Eleven names, even more characters in the story. And as much as the camera is fixed upon Jesus, it regularly pans out and puts the attention on all the people around him. And we look at them and we see how they're responding to Jesus. Will they receive him or do they ridicule him? Which just begs the question to you this morning. 
how have you responded to this Jesus? For Jesus was rejected by God. We might add suffering under the very judgment of God in order to reconcile us to God as we confess him as the son of God. Friends, have you done that? Or are you still on the other side of that iron curtain? Let's pray.